Section 14 of Pitt by Archibald Primrose, Lord Rosebery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 11, Part 1, Ireland. But the greatest of Pitt's domestic difficulties has been left to the last. Throughout the whole period of the war, he had by his side the gaunt specter of the Irish question in its most menacing and formidable shape, an aspect which it retains to this hour. It is never passed into history, for it is never passed out of politics. To take a simile from a catastrophe of nature less ruinous and less deplorable, the volcano that caused that eruption is still active. Beneath the black crust the lava torrent burns, so that the incautious explorer who ventures near the crater finds the treacherous surface yield and himself plunged into the fiery marl of contemporary party strife. No number of previous volumes will suffice to ballast or preserve the innocent investigator. His fate is certain and foreseen. For the moment his foot rests on 1795, he irresistibly slips on to 1886, and rebounding from 1886, he is soon soused in 1891. Happily, however, it is only necessary for the present purpose to consider the actual personal contact of Pitt with Irish affairs, and not to deal with their general phases and effects. Although even thus, there are episodes so controversial that they cannot be treated so concisely as those in regard to which there is less dispute. It is needful to remember that Pitt, after the rejection of his commercial schemes in 1785, appeared to despair of a change of system. He sent over viceroys and chief secretaries to occupy Dublin Castle and accept its traditions. Buckingham's and Westmoreland's, Fitzherbert's and Hobart's, but he turned his own attention perforce elsewhere. Then came the Regency question, when the action of the Irish Parliament indicated dangerous possibilities under the settlement of 1782. Contingencies, which once more directed men's minds toward a union and furnished arguments in its favor, not easy to meet, in those times of perpetual apprehension and peril. The next stage in Irish politics is the emancipation of the Roman Catholics in 1792 and 1793, when measures were passed which, by admitting the Catholic peasantry to the parliamentary suffrage and to juries, and by relieving them from all property disabilities exhausted, for the time at any rate, their interest in that question. The delay in granting a full emancipation subsequently gave the admission of Catholics to Parliament and to office, no doubt, considerable importance. But it was accompanied by a reversal of the enfranchisement of 1793, and was therefore so much the less a popular boon than the acts passed by Pitt. To say that they were passed by Pitt is but the strictest truth, for it was only owing to the persistent pressure of Pitt and Dundas that the violent hostility of the Irish government was overcome. I do not believe, writes the Viceroy with plaintive acrimony, 
as regards even the minor measure of 1792, there was ever an instance in any country of such a sacrifice of private judgment to the wishes of his majesty, meaning, of course, the British government, as by the Irish ministers in the present concession. While this was the act of Pitt and Dundas alone, it may be noted that after the admission of the Whigs, the official protectors of the Catholics to the cabinet in the ensuing year, nothing more was done for their benefit. It was in July 1794, as has been seen, that the Portland Whigs joined Pitt. The Duke, their leader, in this rearrangement, obtained the Home Secretaryship, under which department Ireland was then directly, as it is now, more nominally placed. It was also arranged that as soon as a new opening could be found for Lord Westmoreland, Fitzwilliam should succeed him as Viceroy of Ireland. In this way, the two official heads of Ireland would be Whig, under, of course, the general superintendence of the cabinet, but it was expressly stipulated that there should be no change of system, and that, in fact, Irish policy should be continuous with that previously pursued by the government. We are told that Fitzwilliam accepted the Lord Lieutenancy after long hesitation and with great reluctance. It must, on the other hand, be admitted that all the facts point to an immediately opposite conclusion. He discharged letters in every direction. He published his nomination everywhere. He wrote three months before he was appointed to offer Thomas Grenville the chief secretaryship. He wrote at the same time to solicit the support of Grattan and to propose an immediate conference, so that Grattan came at once, accompanied by the Ponsonbys, and full of high hopes, to London. So much did he put himself in Grattan's hands that after the disputes that ensued, he left to that statesman the ultimate decision whether he should undertake the Lord Lieutenancy or not. The news of his approaching viceroyalty became common property in Ireland. This premature revelation of an appointment in contemplation but not actually settled was the first of Fitzwilliam's disastrous indiscretions. It gave a mortal blow to whatever reputation for prudence he may have possessed and led directly to the unhappy catastrophe which followed. But he did not limit himself to words. He determined to remove Fitzgibbon, the Chancellor, the most powerful man in Ireland. He determined to find high offices at all costs, and by the violent displacement of some of Pitt's oldest adherents, for the two Ponsonbys, the most prominent of the Irish Whigs. By this time it is clear that Pitt was becoming thoroughly alarmed at the precipitate proceedings of the reversionary Lord Lieutenant. He had told Westmoreland, the actual Viceroy, nothing of any alteration. He did not contemplate any immediate change of system. Least of all, would he countenance the removal of the few devoted adherents who had stood by him during the Regency crisis of 1789. He now discovered to his dismay, that Fitzwilliam had already formed his administration, was announcing his policy and proclaiming from the housetops his future achievements, 
which included the dismissal of Pitt's principal friends. He uttered a despairing wish that the promised appointment could be annulled, but intimated that at any rate Fitzwilliam could only go to Ireland on the condition that he gave satisfaction on these vital points. The new Whig ministers declared they must resign. Pitt expressed his regret, but he declared that it was impossible for him to consent to the Chancellor's removal or to leave either him or any of the supporters of the government exposed to the risk of the new system. I ought to add that the very idea of a new system, as far as I understand what is meant by that term, and especially one formed without previous communication or concert with the rest of the king's servants here, or with the friends of government in Ireland, is in itself what I feel it utterly impossible to accede to, and it appears to me to be directly contrary to the general principles on which our union was formed and has hitherto subsisted. He had nothing to reproach himself with, if the worst came to the worst. I must struggle as well I can, with a distress which no means are left me to avoid, without a sacrifice both of character and duty. Grenville, one of Pitt's two confidants in the cabinet, was not less dismayed, for the talk of new systems and new predominance was entirely strange to him, and resolutely repudiated by him. At last there was a general explosion, salutary, as it would seem, for it disclosed and appeared to settle the grounds of dispute. Pitt declared that Fitzwilliam, in his various communications with parties in Ireland, had entirely exceeded his powers, that nothing would induce him to consent to Fitzgibbon's removal, and that he could give no countenance to the idea that Ireland was to be treated as a separate province outside the general control of the government under the exclusive dominion of the Whig party. Fitzwilliam appears to have thought that Ireland was made over to him, as was Lampsacus and Magnesia to Themistocles for his bread and his wine, and that Pitt would have no more to do with its government and the policy pursued there than with Finland or Languedoc. This hallucination was due partly to the idiosyncrasy of Fitzwilliam himself, but mainly to the strange proprietary principles of government, to which allusion has already been made, which were held consciously or unconsciously, though quite conscientiously, by the Whig party. Burke intervened at this juncture with letters of passionate eloquence and pathos. It is scarcely possible even now to read them unmoved. He acknowledged that he was ignorant of the terms on which Portland and his friends had entered the government. He had the highest opinion of Fitzwilliam, whose virtues he once described as the highest and the most unmixed he had ever known in man. Nevertheless, he admitted that Fitzwilliam had acted with indiscretion, and that Portland and he had put themselves in the wrong. At first, then, he was doubtful as to what they should do. But at last his mind seemed to be made up. He dispatched a letter on the 16th of October, in which he solemnly summed up the situation. He wrote, he said, as a dying man, with all the freedom and all the dispassionate clearness of that situation, and declared with infinite sorrow, with inexpressible sorrow, 
that the Whigs must resign. Four days afterwards, he pronounced in a letter not less powerful or less pathetic a directly opposite opinion. If they went, they must be turned out, they must not resign. Oh, I have pity on yourselves, he broke forth, and may the God whose counsels are so mysterious in the moral world, even more than in the natural, guide you through all these labyrinths. In truth, he himself was distracted by contending dreads and scorns, with a living loathing of the Irish system of corruption, but with that loathing overborne by his mastering horror of the French Revolution. Rather than that a schism in the government of Great Britain should weaken the resistance to that pestilence, let even Ireland stand aside. He was, in fact, incapable of giving advice. That the terms on which the Whigs joined Pitt did not include any new system of men and measures was positively asserted by Grenville, who was not merely a man of rigid veracity, and in the innermost secrets of the cabinet, but a strong pro-Catholic. Nor is there a particle of proof, or even probability, that there was any such stipulation, for we may be sure that Pitt would never have agreed to part with so large and critical a part of his prerogative. At last a settlement was arrived at. A final conference was held at which Pitt, Portland, Fitzwilliam, Spencer, Wyndham, and Grenville were present, that is to say, Pitt and one follower with four Whigs. Every detail of patronage and policy was exhaustively canvassed and settled. The results were recorded in a sort of protocol preserved among the Pelham papers. Fitzwilliam was to go as Lord Lieutenant indeed, but on the explicit understanding that there was to be no new system of men or of measures in Ireland that he should, if possible, prevent any agitation of the Catholic question during the present session, that in any case, on that or any other important measure, he should transmit all the information which he could collect with his opinion to the cabinet, and that he should do nothing to commit the government in such matters without fresh instructions. Thus, one would have thought, was removed all possibility of misunderstanding. Here, however, was the fundamental mistake. It was impossible for Fitzwilliam, after his detonations and activities of the autumn, to prevent the agitation of the Catholic question, for he was the prime agitator. It would have been as reasonable for Sir Robert Peel to offer Cobden a seat in his cabinet on the condition that he should exert his endeavors to prevent all agitation for the repeal of the Corn Laws. Fitzwilliam, for months past, had done nothing but announce his approaching Lord Lieutenancy and stir up the question. Naturally, he found Ireland already in a flame. Nor did his official action allay it. He landed January 4, 1795. The next day, a Monday, he spent in bed. On the Wednesday, he summarily dismissed Beresford, a powerful though subordinate officer, a main adviser in Pitt's commercial propositions, and one of Pitt's confidential agents, who was not officially under the Lord Lieutenant at all, but in the Treasury Department, that is, under Pitt himself. This act, Pitt, who did not speak at random, 
characterized as an open breach of a most solemn promise. Other dismissals followed. Cook, the Secretary for War, and Sackville Hamilton, the Under Secretary of State, were promptly removed. It was a clean sweep. Fitzgibbon alone remained, and he only because Fitzwilliam was specially pledged not to remove him. Every faction in Ireland was astir. One party was to be crushed, the other party was to rule. Those with whom Pitt had constantly cooperated in Irish administration were in consternation, for every act of the new government was directed against them. It was a coup d'etat, a stroke of state, justifiable and even necessary on grounds of high state necessity or on the presumption of a revolution in policy, but only defensible on such considerations, and even then to be executed with care and judgment. It was, however, wholly incompatible with the stipulation of Pitt that there was to be no general change in administration or of system, and with his declared obvious policy to keep clear of domestic embarrassments when all his energies were required for the war with France. As to the condition with regard to the Catholics, it would have been impossible to maintain it, even had Fitzwilliam desired to do so. And from the day on which he landed, he bombarded Portland with letters to press for the immediate settlement of the question. To these communications, Portland for some weeks gave no reply whatever. It is urged by Fitzwilliam's apologists that he considered that silence gives consent, a proverb doubtful at all times, but preposterous as a political plea, more especially absurd when it is relied upon for guidance in defiance of definite instructions. Fitzwilliam asserted that he was permitted to give the Catholic cause a handsome support in case they were resolved to bring it forward. The government on their side declared that he was in no way to commit them without fresh instructions, but even on the assumption that Fitzwilliam's interpretation was correct, it is clear that such instructions would apply only to a spontaneous movement and not to one excited by the viceroy himself. At last, on the 8th of February, 1795, Portland wrote to impress on Fitzwilliam the importance of giving no encouragement to the Catholics and of not committing himself in any way, the importance, in a word, of his not doing all that he had been doing for a month. On the ninth, Pitt himself wrote, complaining of the dismissal of Beresford. On the 16th, Portland wrote to declare at length his views on the Catholic question and his entire disapproval of the policy of emancipation at that time. A passage from this strictly confidential dispatch, Fitzwilliam was afterwards so ill-advised, to say the least, as to publish with the most disastrous results. Even now he did not resign, but answered these communications at length. In his letter to Pitt, he made the unfortunate assertion that Beresford had been guilty of malversation, a charge for which he never produced the slightest evidence, in which in any case he could scarcely have examined judicially in the 48 hours that elapsed between his landing and Beresford's dismissal. 
To Portland he reiterated long expostulations on the Catholic question. In reply, Portland, who must be remembered was his party leader as well as his administrative chief, wrote a curt note of censure. The next day, February 19th, Fitzwilliam was recalled. Never was there so hopeless a misunderstanding or one after the general exchange of views in October more incomprehensible. Fitzwilliam published two pompous pamphlets and declared in his place in Parliament that his recall was due to his having connected himself with Grattan. The government refused to discuss the matter, but it must be admitted that untoward, as was that event, the person most responsible for Fitzwilliam's recall was, as is generally the case in such removals, Fitzwilliam himself. He seems to have been a man of generous sympathies and honest enthusiasm, but not less wrong-headed than headstrong, absolutely devoid of judgment, reticence, and tact. Two months before he set out, Pitt had discovered this and deplored the decision to send him. His announcements of his appointment before it was made, his unauthorized propaganda, his rash dismissals, his speeches, his protests, his publication from confidential letters after his recall, betoken a man earnest, intrepid, and single-minded, but singularly destitute of the qualities required for a delicate and discretionary mission. The importance of his recall may easily be exaggerated, though it was in truth a political calamity. Because it was followed by some miserable years, it has been held to be the cause of the misery of those years. This is surely a misstatement. It was rather a landmark. What in 1795 was called the Catholic question was rather a sign of grace than a measure of real importance. The mass of the Catholic peasantry already had the franchise under the Emancipation Act of 1792 and 1793, and it imported little to them whether or not a number of gentry of their own persuasion went up to Dublin to be bought and sold at the castle. It has, indeed, always been a matter of comparative indifference to them, whether they were led by Protestants or Catholics. Nor can parliamentary reform, if we may trust witnesses so intelligent and well-informed as Emmett and McNevin, be said to have been an object of enthusiasm to the mass of the population. What pinched the people were tithes and oppressive rents. With this distinction, that whereas for rents they got something, though perhaps not much, for tithes they got less than nothing. And what excited them were the new prospects presented by the French Revolution. The importance of the recall of Fitzwilliam lies in the fact that he had, however, unwarrantably excited hopes, not of emancipation and reform alone, but of a completely new system, hopes which were shattered by his peremptory removal, so that the quick revulsion produced the blind fury of despair. The affair still remains obscure. What is clear is that which alone concerns these pages, the part and responsibility of Pitt. It is evident that there was a total misunderstanding, that there was a hopeless discrepancy between the assertion of Fitzwilliam that the removal of Beresford had been tacitly sanctioned by Pitt beforehand, 
and Pitt's own statement that he considered it a grave breach of a solemn engagement, that the views, declarations, and policy of Fitzwilliam as to a new system of men and measures were irreconcilable with those of Pitt and his colleagues. It is only necessary, however, to produce one proof that Pitt was in the right, though others are not wanting. All Fitzwilliam's friends in the cabinet, who loved Fitzwilliam, who disliked and distrusted Pitt, who had entered the government reluctantly, and who would have embraced any fair opportunity of leaving it, who had been indeed on the brink of resignation with regard to Irish affairs three months before, all these men, Portland and Wyndham, Spencer and Loughborough, three of them men of the nicest honor and cognizant of the entire chain of agreements and events, all unhesitatingly took the part of Pitt against Fitzwilliam. Who indeed was the minister who, having obtained special responsibility for Ireland by the threat of resignation, now recalled Fitzwilliam? Who but Portland himself, Fitzwilliam's political friend-in-chief? In that very letter to Grattan which has been mentioned, of the 23rd of August, 1794, Fitzwilliam says, I shall look to the system of the Duke of Portland as the model by which I shall regulate the general line of my conduct. Portland's lethargy had been blamable in the earlier stages of the transaction, but he showed none now. This is a circumstance which appears to bar further controversy. From the mouths of four unquestionable and unwilling witnesses, it establishes Pitt's good faith, and the fact that the mistake lay with Fitzwilliam. We should, however, beware of the slightest confusion between the cause and the effects of Fitzwilliam's recall. That he himself was the cause alters in no respect the unhappy results of his removal. It seems, moreover, clear that the objection was not so much to his policy as to his methods— it was urged by Fitzwilliam that the Catholic question had nothing to do with his removal, but that his dismissals were the real cause. This statement seems accurate to the extent that the government was by no means averse to emancipation, but had a rooted distrust of his administrative discretion. Pitt was always ready for concession to Catholics. He showed his readiness before and after. In 1792 and in 1797, there was nothing in 1795 that should change his views. The misfortune was that the Irish could not know his real sentiments, or how he had pushed forward the great emancipation of 1793. They could only surmise that Fitzwilliam had been removed because he was a reformer, and the government hostile to all reform. Dublin shut its shutters and went into mourning, while ardent patriots made up their minds that any amendment must come from France or from an appeal to arms. It would seem at first, therefore, that it would have been far better, as it happened, to allow Fitzwilliam to fulfill his own promises and to carry out his own program. But a moment's reflection shows that this was impossible. There was the direst of all obstacles— a sunken rock. The king had been approached. His honor and his conscience had been moved by the most insidious and most impracticable of arguments, for he had been told that should he consent to the admission of Catholics to political office, he would break his coronation oath and forfeit the crown. 
In that narrow and obstinate but scrupulous mind, this belief was now irrevocably embedded. Fitzwilliam's policy would therefore have been shattered against the king's immovable and impregnable position on the Catholic question, immovable as regards himself, because he believed that emancipation involved the personal guilt of perjury, impregnable against opposition, because it was based on the passions and prejudices of the great mass of the people of Great Britain. And as soon as he scented the Catholic question, the king urged Fitzwilliam's removal. So the impartial thinker can only once more lament that the mission of Fitzwilliam adds another instance of that curse of mischance that has always assisted the curse of misgovernment to poison the relations between England and Ireland. And now things went from bad to worse. In September of this year, 1795, the Orange Society arose. The Catholic organization of the Defenders was already in full operation, the United Irishmen availed themselves of both these leagues. Agrarian outrage and the plunder of arms abounded. In Ulster there was an organized persecution to drive the Catholics out of the province, to hell or cannot. In 1796 all these evils were aggravated by the enrollment of the yeomanry in undisciplined and uncontrollable force. In December of that year, a French expedition under Rush invaded Ireland, but effected nothing. In 1797, the state of the North was hardly distinguishable from civil war. It was placed under martial law. A population which had long been arming for rebellion was disarmed by harsh and summary methods. The government had some 60,000 soldiers and militia quartered in Ireland, there were violent reprisals on the part of the military for the outrages that had been committed by the United Irishmen and Defenders. The year darkened as it passed. The jails were full. Men under suspicion were crimped and sent to serve in the fleet. Some even attributed the mutiny at the Nore to the element thus introduced into the Navy. Patrols pervaded the country all night. There was disaffection among the troops. The Catholics fled from Ulster. On the one side, there were murders, roastings, plunder of arms, and a reign of terror. On the other, picketing, scourging, hanging, half or whole, house-burning, and a reign of not less terror. The miseries of the Thirty Years' War were scarcely more appalling, for it was civil conflict of the most terrible kind, the worst because it was not declared it was anarchy inflamed by fanaticism, while the Parliament and the government that should have remedied and appeased were themselves beyond help or hope. The first could only acquiesce in the proposals of the last. The last could only appeal for more soldiers to England. In 1798, the rebellion, in breaking out, lost something of its horror. The rising was fixed for the 23rd of May, and on that day it flamed forth in the counties of Dublin, Meath, and Kildare. It does not come within the compass of this narrative to describe that insurrection, its massacres and retaliations. That it was not even more formidable may be attributed to two causes. 
Ulster held aloof, and the French came too late. As it was, the rebellion lasted barely a month, and was both local and partial. End of section 14